Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. became aware of Armando Iannucci when I saw the film In the Loop and was introduced to the character of Malcolm Tucker. If you don't get me fucking Brian, I'm going to come over there, I'm going to lock you in a fucking flotation tank and pump it full of sewage until you fucking drown. As played by Peter Capaldi, Malcolm grabbed me from his first moment on screen. I was thrilled to discover that the character originated on a TV show called Thick of It, where I could find more of Malcolm's rants and tirades. And do not move or I will perform a fucking living fucking autopsy on you with a fucking rusty spade and I'll have your kidneys for fucking cufflinks. You say nothing, okay? You stay detached, otherwise that's what I'll do to your retinas. Hi, fetus boy, lesson one. I tell you to fuck off, what do you do? F off. You'll go far, I fuck off. In the old days, we would have just slit you up in the middle like a fucking Cornish pasty, hang your steaming entrails all around the town of fucking London. It wasn't just Capaldi's brilliant, seething delivery, but the incredibly clever, sharp writing of Iannucci that completely riveted me. Not only were Malcolm's lines insanely good, but so too were the lines given to the other characters in reaction to him. Here's one of my all-time favorite lines describing Malcolm. I don't know which is worse, watching him slowly rumble towards you like prostate cancer or him appearing suddenly out of nowhere like a severe stroke. Comedy is perhaps the most difficult thing to pull off. Anyone can make you cry, but not anyone can make you laugh. And even fewer can make you laugh at things you feel are absolutely wrong to make jokes about. But Iannucci can. Take a scene he wrote for Steve Coogan as the title character of the movie Alan Partridge. In this scene, his talk show radio host character ends up being the go-between during a hostage crisis. Okay, you got to, yeah, you're rambling, you've got to be more concise. What what do you want? You know, I want a helicopter. That's just an example, by the way. Okay, he wants a helicopter. He's actually quite angry. He's honking in my ear like a mad Irish goose. Oh, oh. We love you, you um, do, do you mind? It's not a radio roadshow. I'm trying to host a siege, eh? We love you, Get away. Who said that? What's it like in there? Uh, scary, stressful, lots of shouting. A bit like being married again. <laughs> and and, and there's, a, there's a crazy person running around with a gun, so it's a lot like being married again. <laughs> And uh, when I saw a guy with a shotgun in his mouth begging for mercy, then I definitely... You're ahead, you're ahead of me. You're ahead of me. A lot of you are. He's still got his hand on his gun. I think so, he thinks I don't know. Yeah, you. I'm looking at you. Peripheral vision, mate. Alan. It's all right. I'm not retreating. Pat's tugging me off. Alan. No, come on. Come on. We're better than that. We all know that an armed gunman holding hostages and threatening to kill them is not funny. But Iannucci knows that we can laugh at a narcissistic jerk trying to turn that tragedy into a personal showcase for his own egotistical gains. Iannucci cut his teeth on British comedy shows in the mid-90s with The Day Today and Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge, both featuring actor-writer Steve Coogan. He then scored well with Thick of It, a BBC series in the mid-2000s. He made the jump to feature films by writing the screenplay for the Thick of It spin-off movie In the Loop in 2009 and the screenplay for the Alan Partridge movie in 2013. But in 2012, he jumped the pond and created Veep for HBO, where he launched a comic assault on American politics. Politics is about 
people. Politics is about people. I've met some people, okay, real people, and I gotta tell you, a lot of them are idiots. Which way are you gonna vote? The way my principles and conscience tell me to go. Which way do you think that should be? I'm genuinely sorry that my arrival here has caused you to become so self-conscious and gain a little weight. He's such a That's why I hired him. I need a you here to spy, Jonah? I'm not here to spy. I work at the White House, so I can just walk in and say, I'm from the White House. What the are you doing? Did the president call? No. No. But Inucci left the show when Donald Trump was elected president because he basically felt that his comedy could no longer compete with the absurdities of the real world. Now, for his feature writing and directing debut, he turns to Russian politics of the 1950s for The Death of Stalin, based on a French graphic novel. Here's the trailer to give you a taste of the style of comedy. Stalin's dead. He's dead. Stalin is dead! Oh, my God. Our general secretary is lying in a puddle of indignity. Yeah, he's feeling unwell, clearly. I want to make a speech at my father's funeral. Um, no problem. Technically, yes, but practically. When I said no problem, what I meant was no problem. The death of Stalin looks to the day Stalin died and the chaos that struck his inner circle as everyone jockeyed for position and power. The film recalls the comedy of Monty Python, but with a wit and style that's distinctly Iannucci's. There's probably more historical accuracy in his comedy than most Hollywood movies strive for in their historical biopics. And that's part of what's funny. As you can tell from the trailer, there's no attempt at Russian accents. And again, that only works in the comedy's favor. For Yanucci, making fun of those in power never gets old. And you can always find something to laugh at. I'm thrilled to have gotten a chance to speak with this comic genius about the art and craft of creating satire. So without any further ado, here's my interview with the great Armando Iannucci. We began talking about how he went from contemplating becoming a Catholic priest and working on a Ph.D. about Milton to ending up in comedy. <laughs> it sounds like I'm slightly mixed up. I mean, the, you say, you're right to say at one point, thinking about, you know, when I was about 14, but, uh, but that didn't last very long. The, the idea of taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience... In the end, I worked out I couldn't really stick to any of those. But, you know, religion is something that fascinates me, different religions and, and the religious ideal. And I think it's, it's an important aspect of who we are, uh, not to be sneered at. So it still fascinates me, uh, which is why Paradise Lost, I, I tried to write a Ph.D. about it. And, you know, it's all about the, the fall of the angels and Satan. Satan is amazing in it. That thing of like the, the the villain is always the most interesting bit. Satan is the the Darth Vader in in Paradise Lost. But while I was writing it, I was doing lots of comedy at university and writing more and more and performing. And that's when I realized I really wanted to go into comedy. Really. Now, your particular brand of comedy is very satirical and political. What draws you to that particular brand of comedy? I think. I don't know, is it the drama? There's a drama in politics, especially sort of national politics at the head of the government. There's, there's a drama there. There's, um, there's something very Shakespearean about it, the kind of the rise and fall and the rise again. Uh, and also the fact that these are human beings and they're very vulnerable and frail and, and fallible, and yet the decisions they make you know, have, have consequences for, could be millions of people. That fascinates me and um and strangely there's a comedy there 
in the fact that ultimately it's a, it's a bit like the Wizard of Oz. You know, from the outside, all these government departments in Washington look absolutely terrifying and it looks like everyone inside knows exactly what they're going to do and what they want to do but when you go in you realize it's a warren of rooms where nobody quite knows what's happening and where everyone is much much younger than you imagine they're all about 12 they've all got degrees in terrorism studies from georgetown university and and at the age of 22 are in charge of you know the national economic policy um and, and it's just frightening but it's also absurd which which is where the comedy comes from no offense son but i mean you look like you should still be at school with your head down a fucking toilet uh, your first point there the offense i'm afraid i'm gonna have to take it your second point i'm 22 but uh item it's my birthday in nine days so to make you feel more comfortable we could wait don't get sarcastic with me son we bumped this tight ass city to the ground in 1814 and i'm all for doing it again Starting with you, you frat fuck. Do you feel we're at a time where journalism is failing us in a certain way and we need to turn to comedians like John Oliver or Bill Maher to get what we used to from pointed editorials? You know, I couldn't do what I normally do, like in Veep. I, I couldn't do that with, right now because I think what's ha- no fictional version of what's happening now is as absurd as what is happening now. Because Trump is his own... He's an entertainer. And with his tweets, he's deliberately exa- he's exaggerating for effect, which is what comedians do. So he is his own sort of comedian. And I think he, and he calls the news fake news. So I think why people like John Oliver and Samantha Bee and so on do what they do is, is if Trump is the comedian who's calling the news fake, then it's up to the comedian <laughs> to become a journalist. And to say, okay, well, let's just present some facts. How about this? And then this? And then this? And just by laying out the facts, it becomes funny. It's a strange, topsy-turvy situation we're in at the moment. And what do you see that comedy might be able to do when tackling politics that journalism can't? I mean, how, do, how can comedy, do you think, reach an audience in like a different way and, and strike a chord with people in a way that... I mean, it strikes a chord because... I think comedy only works if it if it feels honest uh, uh, and and is believable. You know, it, 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 if a comedian comes up with a kind of line of attack, it only really works if if you felt something slightly similar but just never articulated as well or as funnily. And I think that's where it does. I think it. it I think comedians, when when they're really good allow you another way of looking at something and it might it might encourage you to think again about it or it might just encourage you to ask yourself well what do you think so it, it at least helps you engage with the idea again a lot of people had been going off politics and not interested and not voting not participating because they thought well what difference does it make you know it, it's not it's you know it, it's all the same to me whoever gets in and i think then what people realized over the last couple of years in the election, and also in the UK, in the Brexit, you know, if you don't vote, then actually things do change considerably. Um, uh, and I think that's what comedians do. If, if they're good, if they're intelligent, if they work hard at it, and they, they at least get you to engage with these ideas again. You know, but I, I think you're on a hiding to nothing if you, if you have a comedian who's, who tries to change how you will vote, because that's up to you. But but if if very 
least they're bringing the facts to you and they're bringing the issues to you, then I think that's a good thing, really. You seem to like dark comedy and things that make us gasp at what we're laughing at. And I realized this when I was watching the Alan Partridge film on an airplane and was laughing at things that seemed wholly inappropriate because the story has to do with a hostage situation and guns and people being shot. You making us laugh hysterically at this. How but then do you there's nothing wrong with laughing. You know, then the film The Death of Stalin, we did a lot of research in Moscow, and we found out that in the 1950s under Stalin, people used to circulate joke books about Stalin, jokes about Stalin and about death and about torture and prison. And you could be shot if you had one of these joke books about you. And yet people felt the need to to write them down and to circulate them, to, to, to make fun. It's a, you know, making a joke about someone is your way of trying to deal with it. People talk about how at funerals it's very common that people feel the need to just suppress a laugh because it's so solemn and so sad that something, something triggers inside you a nervousness. Um, and, and you know, it's, it, in the end, it can't be explained why it is that we... You know, I, I mentioned earlier why we, we're all... Relig- you know, there's a religious side to people, and that's part of who human beings are. But also, you know, human beings are the only animal that tells jokes. <laughs> you know, we, we have this need to kind of make each other laugh and to make the world feel a little bit more ridiculous. Maybe it's our way of, of trying to um, make reality feel a, bit, a little bit more palatable. I don't know, but it's, it's something there that can't be explained. But I... I You know, the fact that we tell jokes in any circumstance about any subject, I think is a good thing because it shows that we, you know, we're still, it's it's part of our spirit, really. Think of it satirized British politics and Veep tackled American politics. And now you're tackling Russian politics and the death of Stalin. Is there any difference in the tone of the comedy when you're tackling different countries? Yeah, there's a different tone. And also it's set in the past. It's set in 1953. And it's set, I mean, the stakes are much higher. You know, in the thick of it in Veep, if somebody made a mistake, you know, it's embarrassing. But in, in the death of Stalin, if somebody makes a mistake, they are killed. And, you know, the stakes are much higher. And that transforms the comedy completely because it's no longer a comedy about just trying to, you know, get through the day. It's a comedy about anxiety and craziness. People just behave crazily when they're terrified. You know, the, the, the film opens with scene in a concert hall. It's a live concert going out on Radio Moscow. Radio Moscow, Director Andreev, what is it? 17 minutes? Yes, of course I can ring back in 17 minutes. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm writing it down. One, five. Sorry, was that a nine? Is it in fine? Or or, or, or another five, is it in... um... Hive. Hive. Hello? Hello? Hive. Who was it? Secretariat of the General Secretariat. Of the General Secretary. Of the, the Secretary of the General... Stalin. Stalin rings up during the performance and says, I'd love a, a recording of this. And they put the phone down and realised that he, they haven't been taping it. It was going out live, but they weren't 
preserving it on record. Okay, nobody leave. Nobody leave. Lock the doors. Lock those doors. If you wouldn't mind just taking your seats again, please, that would be fantastic. Take your seats. Take your fucking seats. Take your seats. Don't worry. Nobody's going to get killed. I promise you. It's, uh, this is just a musical emergency. Take your seats. That's it. And they're absolutely petrified that they might get killed because they've not managed to furnish Stalin with a recording. So he runs out and locks the doors and tells the audience they're going to stay and we're going to do it again for Stalin, at which point the conductor, so petrified, he, he, he faints and knocks himself unconscious so they don't have a conductor. So they then have to scour Moscow for another conductor. I love you. I love you. Now, you say whatever you have to say to them. You say it. Uncle. Hello. Hi. Uh, deepest uh, apologies. Uh, Radio Moscow requests your presence immediately, please. You're Moscow's finest and nearest conductor, so we must hurry. Who, and who comes in and, in his pyjamas and conducts it. And that's all a true story. It's absolutely true. And, it, and it's, a, it's in kind of uh, condensed form all the themes of paranoia and panic and craziness that was going on in that kind of, uh, in, in, in that time, in that country. Um, and, and that's what the comedy is all about. It's about people, how people behave when, when the world is crazy. And you do also in this one make us laugh while horrific things are happening. <laughs> yes, but the first thing I said when we shot the, the film, when we started filming, was like, we have to be very respectful to what happened to the people of the Soviet Union. A lot of them were imprisoned or, or killed or exiled. And, you know, we don't play the laughs there. We show that for real. The laughs really are what's going on in the Kremlin. It's the politicians. It's, the, it's Stalin's inner circle desperately trying to see who would be the next leader and trying to survive. And it's their crazy behavior that, that you then see played out for real outside. But, um, so there's two things going on in the film all the way through, which is comedy and drama simultaneously. Because I want the audience to feel, to laugh, yeah, but also to feel uh, anxious about what's going to happen next. He's irreplaceable. <laughs> How can we possibly? <laughs> All right, uh, let's think of the people. Uh, <clears throat> as acting general secretary, I must uh, step up. I must, um, I must uh, take his place while he's um, on the floor. But you just said he's irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. Take his place, as in assembling the central committee, of course. Good. I was testing you. Get used to that sort of challenge. So, what next, boss? We should, we should get a doctor. Yeah. Yes, if only we hadn't put away all those highly competent doctors for treason. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do, I do. And, it, you know, they were plotting. They were plotting oh, yeah. to poison him. Yes, that's right. You, yes. you collected the evidence. Yes, I did. I did. And are you still testing me? Strange enough, there's an odd parallel between comedy and horror. It's interesting. Get Out is a really great film. Uh, and it's interesting that it's written and directed by someone who, who, who's so well-versed in comedy. Because horror is all about anticipation in the same way that comedy is, you know, setting the joke up and what's the punchline going to be and surprising people. And similarly in horror, it's, you know, what's going to happen next and when are you going to get the next surprise? It's funny because I was just talking to some film editors about the parallels between editing for comedy and editing for horror and how there's similarities in that. Oh, right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. 
it's only something that I kind of dawned on me as I was as I was making the film. I was thinking, actually, the scenes of terror. I'm going to shoot them the same way I would shoot a, a comedy item, really, because it's the same dynamic. <laughs> Now, what led you to making Death of Stalin? Because it's actually based on a French comic book. Yeah, French comic book. But I was thinking about doing something about dictator anyway. I just had this inkling that, you know, the world today in democracies, something strange is happening. You know, people are getting elected and then changing their constitutions so that they can stay in power. And, and you know, democracies are... are um, you know, under a lot of strain at the moment. So I was thinking about that anyway, and then I got sent the comic book, and I read it, and I thought, well, this is the story, but more than that, it's true. I don't even have to come up with a fiction here. This is true. All these events happened. And that, for me, was the powerful thing about it. And it opened with the concert and, and, and so on. Yeah, it just it was an instant thing. As soon as I read it, I knew I wanted to make the film and I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. And I knew it had to be really funny, but also, you know, leave you anxious <laughs> as well. Shoot her before him, but make sure he sees it. Or in this one, um, kill him, take him to his church, dump him in the pulpit. And I'll leave the rest up to you. Well, in your particular brand of comedy requires such precision, like one note off in the wrong direction, and it all goes awry. But then that's the, where the edit comes in, and I had, you know, five months in the edit because I wanted to make sure that every moment worked and that the balance, we got the right balance between the comedy and the tragedy, that, 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 that both of them sort of complemented each other. And that involves, you know, going through and taking some funny bits out because sometimes the joke spoils the scene because it's a joke. Other, and other times I took some graphic violence out because I felt that's too much at that point in the film. You know, once you see that, you won't laugh in the next scene. So it's about getting the right balance so that every at every point in the film, the comedy is leading to the tragedy, which is leading to more comedy, which is leading to the tragedy, and, and so on. You know, so that's, that's where you, you kind of work that out. I understand you shot this before Trump came to office, but do you see it as reflecting him, his presidency? Well, it does a bit. You know, I mean, Trump, within two days of being president, tweeted that CNN and NBC were enemies of the people. And what he didn't realize was enemies of the people is a, is a phrase used by Stalin. In fact, it was banned when Khrushchev took over from Stalin. He banned that phrase because it was associated with Stalin. And it's to do with, you know, criminalizing your opponents, calling them unpatriotic or enemies of the people or treacherous. Um, so there are parallels. Or when, when he got the cameras in to go around the cabinet, and each member of the cabinet had to say how great he was and how he thanked God that Trump had given him this job in Trump's cabinet and so on. That felt very, that felt like a Stalin committee meeting. And what do you think it is about comedy that makes it so powerful in the sense that politicians and governments really do fear it? It's unpredictable. I think that's what it is. That's why the film has been banned in, in, in Russia because it's a comedy about the Kremlin, whereas other films that have been very serious films about the Kremlin, I mean, it's unpredictable. You, you can't control how people will laugh, and that makes, people, that makes politicians very nervous. Politicians who can't take a joke are, the, are, are always the ones to fear, I think. <laughs> 
I want to ask about uh, the choices you made in the sense of you make no attempt to have the actors use Russian accents, and there's... Oh, because which Russian accent? You know, there are hundreds of them. It's a huge, huge country. And then the Soviet Union was more than Russia. Stalin was from Georgia. He spoke Georgian. Khrushchev was Ukraine. So, so I knew I didn't want that. And also I thought it would make things feel very, very artificial. Suddenly people are speaking not in their first language, but in their second language, strangely enough. Um, so, but to get that, so everyone was going to speak in English, but to get that sense of it being a massive uh, country, have lots of different English accents. So there's Scottish, there's London, there's American, West Coast, New York, um, Irish. You know, it's, uh, that, that was the thinking. Well, does it also heighten the comedy in a sense by making it more universal in a certain sense and saying, like, this happens everywhere? Well, yeah, it's, um, I mean, somebody saw the film at Sundance and came up after me and she was in tears and she said, because this has just happened in my country. She was from Zimbabwe and Mugabe had just stood down and she said, the exact same story has just happened. Um, and it is universal. It is, it's not just from... I did want people to think this is a story about somewhere far, far away and a long time ago. It, I wanted people to be aware that this is happening now and can, can happen again. In, who are your influences in terms of comedy? Are there filmmakers or, or films that have influenced you? Um, well, I looked again at uh, Charlie Chaplin's Great Dictator, which, was, you know, which he made in 1941 uh, about Hitler. Um, which has great moments of comedy as well as very serious scenes set in the Jewish ghetto. And then, just generally, I'm a, a huge Robert Altman fan in terms of his naturalism and him things he's make, he makes things funny and yet believable and true. MASH is one of a, my all-time great movies. I always find them and very real, you know, very honest. And talk about your casting of Steve Buscemi as Khrushchev. That just seems genius. <laughs> well, you see, Khrushchev was regarded as the clown. He, he made Stalin laugh, and Stalin used to make him get drunk and dance for him and, and all sorts of things. And yet he becomes the one, he's the only one brave enough to kind of mount the coup, to kind of take over. Um, so he has to move in 90 minutes from being the clown to being the de- next dictator. And Steve has this, you know, warmth and um, friendliness and funniness, but then he can be terrifying as well. He can play the terrifying character, the cold character. That's why I thought that he would, um, he would do a great job. You mentioned that the opening scene with the concert not being recorded was a real thing that had yeah. happened. Are, are there any other things in the, the story that you feel were so absurd that you you couldn't believe they actually happened? I know. Well, in the concert, actually in real life, it got through three conductors because the second conductor turned up and he was drunk, so they had to get a third conductor in. But I thought if I put three conductors in at the beginning, people wouldn't believe it. And then we found this story that uh, Vasily Stalin's son who was over-promoted in the Air Force, was in charge of the Air Force hockey team, ice hockey team. And he insisted that they fly to a tournament, even though there was an ice storm coming. And people warned him not to, and he insisted. And the plane crashed, and he lost the entire team. But rather than tell his father, he just got friends and friends of friends to make up a team. And they were terrible. 
Um, and, and that's a true story, and that's in the film. When we play Hungary, we're allowed to use guns. Come on, General, these are the best I could find since the plane crash. What plane crash? There was never a plane crash. Was there a plane crash? The Soviet planes do not crash, and Stalin's son does not fuck up. Oh! I mean, there's stuff that's just so unbelievable and yet true. Uh, because people were just terrified and just didn't know what to do. And that's when people behave really oddly, when they're terrified. And do you see a progression in your work in terms of how your comedy has changed from the time you were doing shows on television to where it's come now? Well, I suppose I'm kind of more interested now in story, really, rather than just lots of sketches or caricatures, I suppose. Um, that's what interests me. And I just like working with interesting actors, really, and really trying to get the best out of them. It's the directing side that I've become more at home with and comfortable with. So I, I love the idea of just sitting down. There was a time we, we, we wrote this scene in The Death of Stalin very late on in the day for Michael Palin, and we didn't have time to rehearse it in advance, so I, we had to rehearse it on the day. And it was a Sunday, and it was a quiet day, and it was just myself and Steve Buscemi and Simon Russell Beale and Michael Palin spending an hour rehearsing a scene, and then everyone else comes in and we, sh we shoot it. And it was just a lovely... It was just one of my lovely memories of, of, of the shoot, really, of, like, this is what we do. You know, we, we, we come up with stuff for these actors, and then we try and make it work as best we can and, and, and try and make it come alive. With your particular style of comedy, is everything very tightly scripted, or are you open to changes or improvisation during the shooting? Always, always open to changes. I mean, what we do is we work very, very hard on the script so that the script has gone through, you know, many, many drafts. So it's very tightly written. But then the idea is on set to make it look like it hasn't been written at all. That's, that's part of the technique of, of, of how we perform it. So I encourage actors to slightly loosen it up. As long as they get all the beats and they get all the references and there are certain key phrases that have to be said in a certain way. But other than that, I encourage them, especially if there's time at the end of the day, to play around with it as well and to overlap the dialogue. And this is part of you know what I picked up from watching... Uh, Robert Altman, um, what is that? So it's, it is, yeah, it's a lot of hard work into getting it written, and then, but in the shoot, it's all about not making it feel written. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time and for making these brilliant comedies that entertain us. All right, us. thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Armando Iannucci, the writer and director of the new film, The Death of Stalin, which opens this month. You can also check out his television and cable series, Thick of It and Veep. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or simply tell a friend to take a listen. It's your personal recommendation that helps the most in building a bigger audience for the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can also make a tax-deductible donation to support Cinema Junkie by going to kpbs.org slash feedthejunkie. Coming up on future Cinema Junkie episodes, I'll be talking with the Hemlock Society about Right to Die films and with the executive director of the new Comic-Con Museum. So, till our next film fix, I'm Bethica Mondo, your resident Cinema Junkie.